In the Chronicles of Narnia, the allegorical fiction of C.S. Lewis, a lion named Aslan represents our Lord Jesus. A little girl named Lucy illustrates the growing Christian. One night, Lucy sees Aslan in the moonlight. He appears huge and shines brightly. She races to greet him and buries her face in his lush, silky mane. The mighty lion, he rolls over on his side and he cradles Lucy between his big paws. His warm breath surrounds the little girl. She gazes up into his large, wise eyes. Aslan greets her. Welcome, child. Lucy says with astonishment, Aslan, you are bigger. The lion answers, that's because you're older, little one. She asks, not because you are? And he explains, I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And this is what happens when we grow in our faith. We discover our Lord Jesus is bigger and brighter and better than we imagined. He gets magnified in our hearts. Jesus doesn't grow, but our knowledge of Jesus grows. And this is what happens in Revelation chapter 5. This is one of the most Christ-exalting, mind-expanding, heart-exploding, praise-prompting chapters in all of the Bible. You see, you approach Revelation 5 with a kindergarten faith. But when you walk away from this chapter, you'll find that your faith has matured. After Revelation chapter 5, the already mighty lion, the king of the jungle, seems even bigger and brighter and bolder. Well, when John penned the book of Revelation, the first century of Christianity was coming to a close. John was the last remaining disciple of the original twelve. And I'll bet not a day went by when someone didn't ask John, what do you remember most about Jesus? John had seen and heard the Lord firsthand. And he had a myriad of memories on which he could draw. A surprise catch of fish, jars of water into vats of wine, multiplying the loaves and the fish. I mean, John was there for the healings and the Last Supper and the crucifixion. John even outran Peter to the empty tomb. Even after 50 years, John still has a crick in his neck after straining so hard to watch Jesus ascend back to heaven. But this vision in Revelation chapter 5 alters forever now how John is going to look at his Lord Jesus. John suddenly sees the Christ not as he was, but as he is and will be. Nothing is familiar anymore to John. He's in the throne room of God. John first met Jesus on earth. Here in chapter 5, he encounters Jesus in heaven. At his first coming, the ministry of Jesus encompassed the area, oh, the size of New Jersey, the Holy Land. Now his ministry transcends the whole earth. John senses that the scope of his influence is now cosmic, universal. You know, I get a chuckle whenever I invite someone to church without telling them ahead of time that I'm the pastor. They're always surprised. Folks, get used to me in one setting. 
I'm their kid's coach, or I'm a neighbor, or I'm the guy in the grocery store. But then they come to Calvary Chapel and they see me in a different environment. I've had little baseball players turn to their parents and say, what's, Pastor, what's Coach Sandy doing on stage? In a sense, this is what happens in Revelation chapter 5. Jesus is revealed to John now in a different environment. And in one glimpse of faith, one glimpse of this throne room in this scene in Revelation chapter 5, and John's faith is going to be ramped up forever. You see, John gets a revelation. Jesus is a lion that looks like a lamb, and he is a lamb that acts like a lion. We're going to track John's vision by noting seven S's. And if you're taking notes, you can jot these down. This chapter revolves around a scroll and a sob and a sibling, then seven seals and some scars, and then the supplications of the saints, and finally, a new song. Pay attention today. And you too might have a faith-expanding experience. Well, first, notice John sees a scroll, verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. The only other biblical reference to a sealed scroll is in Jeremiah chapter 32. There, it's a title deed to a parcel of land. Ancient deeds were written on double-sided scrolls, or epistographs, as they're called. Written on the outside was a legal description of the property and its owner. The inside contained covenants and terms required to take possession of the land. Often these scrolls were very lengthy, and they were bound at intervals with waxed seals. This scroll had seven seals. You see, when a property changed hands... Once the price was paid, then the seals were broken. The parcel belonged to a new owner, but the breaking of the seals disclosed the steps he had to take to take possession of the land. The scope of interest in this particular deed indicates it's a very strategic document. Its appearance in heaven tips us off that it's a very significant real estate transaction is about to take place. A deed is about to change hands. On April the 30th, 1803, the greatest land acquisition in history occurred. For a paltry $15 million, the United States purchased from Napoleon in France 530 million acres. The track extended west from the Mississippi to the Rockies and north from New Orleans to Canada. The land was eventually carved into 15 states. That's a pretty good deal, 15 million for 15 states. The Louisiana Purchase was the biggest bargain of all time. Yet even a Louisiana Purchase pales in comparison to what's about to take place in heaven before John's very eyes. He's about to see the deal to end all deals. Verse 2. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. We see a scroll and now John sobs 
because no one was worthy to open the deed. Obviously, this real estate venture is an agonizing experience for John. I don't know about you, but every real estate purchase I've ever engaged in has been an agonizing experience for me. The process of buying a house can bring tears to your eyes. I mean, your first concern is to make sure you're buying a quality home, and you can't trust the ads, can you? I mean, common phrases take on whole new meanings in a real estate ad. For example, much potential. You know what that really means? Expensive repairs needed. Unique urban design. That means once a warehouse. Daring design. That means still a warehouse. Reduced to move means been on the market for years. Close to school means backs up to a basketball court. Luxury living, that means overpriced. Cozy, that's smaller than a phone booth. Fixer-upper, think Berlin before World War II or after World War II. Country charm, you know what that really means? Cows graze in your neighbor's front yard. And here's the last one, real potential, <laughs> that's the equivalent of enter at your own risk. Hey, as far as I'm concerned, real estate transactions are indeed stress-producing. Like John, they cause you to sob. But John isn't sobbing here because he's unsure of the quality of what's being purchased or that he's worried that it's being misrepresented. To the contrary, John weeps because he knows what's at stake. You cannot overestimate the value and the costliness of this parcel. I believe, like many Bible students, that the scroll in verse 1 is actually the title deed to the universe. Now understand, God is into land acquisition. He has an interest in real estate. God gave a parcel of property to Abraham. You remember later he set up boundaries and he carved out plots for each of Israel's 12 tribes. He set aside a special track of land for David's heir to build the temple. God gave Israel laws to govern ownership and the transference of real estate. God is the first and foremost realtor. You see, from centuries before Christ to century 21. Get it? We're in century 21. At various times over the, over the eons, God has dealt in real estate. In anticipation of this one final deal that we find here in Revelation chapter 5. You see, John is sobbing because he sees no one worthy to open this scroll and take possession of this property. And realize, this is the problem that the universe faces today. Realize our problem today. You need to understand the conditions that we live in, for these conditions affect the quality of your life every single day. When God created the universe, the crown of His creation was mankind, the creature made in His own image. God put Adam and Eve in a garden to till and to cultivate it and eat its fruit. Because He loved the man and the woman, He gave them dominion, supremacy, and control over the entire earth. In fact, in the naming of the animals, man expressed his authority over the animal kingdom. There's just a couple of animals there. 
You can't imagine the beauty of life within the garden. I mean, work was no sweat. All Adam and Eve had to do was just pick fruit off a tree and eat it. I mean, they inherited a perfect utopia. You see, we're so used to the disappointment and the pain and the injustice and the illness and the corruption all around us that we can't imagine what life would be like before sin entered into our lives. But we ruined paradise. Adam, mankind, listened to the snake and rebelled against God and instantly life changed. Everything under man's dominion began to kick against his authority. Everything began to buck against his will once man committed sin and sin entered the world. The creation became subjected to randomness. Mother nature went nuts. Hurricanes named Sandy and tornadoes and earthquakes and tsunamis now plague us. And ever since, Satan has had a field day. Since man is now blind to God and the things of God, Satan preys on our ignorance. We're easily deceived and manipulated, and Satan has wrestled the world from man's control. Today it's obvious that Satan has at least semi-control of the world we live in. Jesus acknowledged as much in John 12, verse 31, when he called Satan the ruler of this world. Satan is the usurper. When mankind divorced himself from God, Satan then stole control of the planet. Remember in Matthew chapter 4, Satan offered Jesus the kingdoms of this world. All he asked in return was for Jesus to bow down and worship him. Of course, Jesus rejected the devil's diabolical deal, but he never questioned the devil's right to make the offer. For Jesus knew that the world is indeed in Satan's clutches. And this explains the awful shape the world is in today. Our fallen condition is not God's fault. If you have blamed God for the suffering of innocent people or cancer or child abuse or senseless accidents or war or famine or birth defects or Alzheimer's or the terrible calls the referees made yesterday, then you owe God an apology. Our fallen condition is not God's fault. The world today is not as God made it to be. It was gifted to man, then stolen by Satan. The miserable conditions we live in are the result of man's dominion and Satan's influence, not the control and authority of God. This world was given over to man, then forfeited to Satan, and as a result, John sobs. Imagine a teenager who takes the keys to his dad's new Mercedes, goes cruising without permission, then wraps the car around a telephone pole. He was trusted with a valuable possession that he wrecked, and now he doesn't have the funds with which he needs to make the repairs. Well, see, John feels this same pain. This is humanity's predicament. And this is why John weeps convulsively. Mankind has wrecked the car, and now no one is worthy to take the deed and retake possession. The universe is in danger of falling into Satan's hands forever. One man paraphrases John, I wept and wept and wept. Well, John hears a strong angel offer this challenge. 
Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? But I mean, immediately the situation looks grim. Notice, this is a strong angel. Maybe even the archangel Gabriel. But this strong angel can't open the scroll. Okay, strong angels are out. Who's left? Weak angels? If strong angels can't do it, weak angels can't. And who's left after that? A member of the human race? That's a step down. I mean, not even great saints like Abraham and Moses and David and a pastor's wife. They're incapable as well. I mean, the greatest saints aren't as strong as angels. Verse 3 makes it official. No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. I mean, they can't find anyone worthy enough to even give it a gaze. No wonder John cries like a baby. Reminds me of the newlyweds who went shopping for their first house. Oh, they didn't have much money. And so they asked the realtor, they told, him his, they told him their salary, and then they asked him, they said, do you think you have a house in our price range? The agent answered, well, yes, its current owner is a German shepherd named Prince. And this is why John sobs profusely, all mankind is in the doghouse. Which brings us to the third S, the sibling. You see, God knew how man would foolishly throw away his dominion. So early on in the annals of Israel, God established laws that governed the control of real estate. He even added a provision for redemption. You see, every property transaction in Israel came with a clause. The original owner retained the right to buy back the land if he could afford the redemption price. In ancient Israel, families lost their land in two ways. Either the owner died without an heir, or the property was used as collateral on a loan that couldn't be paid. Well, if the owner was unable to pay it back, or even if he was dead, a fellow sibling could step in and redeem the land for the family. This relative was called the Goel, or the sibling redeemer. Well, John understood these laws of redemption. And so that's why he's in heaven. He's scanning around looking for a rich relative that can buy back the universe. But he finds no one worthy. John is afraid now that the fallen world and fallen mankind will remain stuck in their fallen state. And that's when one of the elders sitting by God's throne, he walks up to John and he throws his arm around his shoulder. Cheer up, John, so, so to speak. And John never forgot the good news he shared, verse 5. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. There's one who has prevailed, John. There is a lion from the tribe of Judah who matched the requirements, and who satisfied the terms of redemption. There is one, John, who can bankroll the scroll. Hey, Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, is one of the most strategic moments in the history of the universe. 
the opportunity to take back this fallen world is about to expire when suddenly one emerges who can right all wrongs and redeem all that's been lost. He is the Lion of Judah. And He is the Root of David. The ancestral tree of Israel's kings had the family of David as its branch and the tribe of Judah as its trunk. Jesus of Nazareth was born a man, both of the right tribe and of the right family, of Judah and of David. This gave him the perfect pedigree to become mankind's sibling redeemer. Jesus is the rich relative we need. Jesus is the one who's rich in righteousness. Through His perfect life and His sacrificial death, Jesus earned enough equity and righteousness to pay the debt our sin had caused. Put it all together. And Jesus is the one. He has the credentials required to pop the scroll and take possession. And realize Jesus' motivation in all of this. He endured the brutalities of the cross and paid our debt not just because He wanted to buy back a parcel or even a planet. Hey, we'll learn later of a new heaven and a new earth. I mean, Jesus is able to start over. Why pay for what's lost? Well, Matthew 13 reveals this mystery in a parable. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The man buys the land not to have another field, but to possess the treasure that he knows is there on it. And you, my friend, are Jesus' treasure. He loves you. He values you. He, backs, he buys back the title deed of the universe. Why? To make you part of His family. How amazing is that? Which brings us to the fourth S. What about these seven seals? Jesus doesn't just open the scroll. He breaks the seals. Little wax seals bound up the deed. You know, it was one thing to buy back a piece of land, but it is another task altogether to force the person living on that property to vacate so that the new owner can move in. And the breaking of each of these seals reveals another step toward eviction. The last seal, well, that seals the deal. I read of a woman in Miami just recently who moved into a foreclosed home. The home sold two years ago for $400,000. She signed up for electricity and had the water hookup, you know, done. And she even, she even got an internet connection. The only problem was she didn't own the house. She's a modern day squatter. Well, Satan is also a squatter. Adam and Eve turned the world that God gave them over to an interloper. Satan has usurped his place, and now he refuses to move. I heard of a homeless man who pitched his tent in, front of, in the front yard of a public library. He refused to vacate. He decided he wanted to live there. He called the library home. When negotiations failed, he was removed by force. What if you were heading into that library when you saw the police mismanhandling this hostile homeless fellow? You might be tempted to cry, police brutality. Well, this is why chapter 5 is so crucial 
to what happens in the rest of Revelation. For Jesus is about to rough up the rebel planet. He is going to evict Satan and his demons and the legions of humans that have joined in their coup d'etat. Each time Jesus is going to pop one of these seals in heaven, sparks are going to fly on planet earth. Terrible judgments will be unleashed. But don't forget Revelation chapter 5. For who, who holds the deed on this property? Who does this property really belong to? Who holds the title? Who is worthy to take the scroll and open the seals? It belongs to Jesus. This world rightly belongs to Jesus Christ. He holds the title deed. And He will eliminate everyone who stands in the way of His rule. And rightly so. For centuries now, a stubborn Satan has been having his way. A rebellious man has been getting his say. We live in an age that might be called the day of man. But coming soon is a time that the Bible refers to as the day of the Lord. Revelation 6-19 through describes a period of time when God will have his say and his way in the affairs of mankind. And Satan will get bounced from this planet. We're jumping ahead a bit, but sometimes it's helpful to know the end from the beginning. When the smoke clears, chapter 20, verse 10 tells us, The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Hey, gentle Jesus, he also knows how to play hardball. The same wicked world that nailed Jesus to the cross will get nailed by His judgments. A rebellious planet will find itself in the path of a lion on the prowl. In verse 5, the elder refers to John's sibling and our Redeemer as the lion of the tribe of Judah. The lion is considered the king of beasts. Go to the zoo and watch a lion swagger as he walks. The other animals shudder in fear when they hear him roar. Examine the lion's jaws and his teeth and his, the sweep of his paws. A lion is a picture of courage and power and dominance and agility and ferociousness. And he is the perfect type of Jesus. There's an excerpt from C.S. Lewis where Lucy talks to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And Lucy asks... Who is Aslan? Mr. Beaver is astonished. Why, don't you know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. Lucy replies, is he safe? I'll feel quite nervous about meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver jumps in. That you will, dearie. Anyone who appears before Aslan without their knees knocking is either braver than most or just silly. Again, Lucy asks, but is he safe? And that's when Mr. Beaver utters his fav famous line, Safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver is telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Revelation proves that Jesus isn't a tame lion. He's good, but he's not necessarily safe. For Jesus will one day bring the wicked to their knees. He'll clean up the mess we've made of this world. Jesus will stop the insanity, even if He has to halt the earth on its axis. 
Jesus, the righteous judge, will bring to order a universe in contempt. If you're looking for real hope and change, vote Jesus. He is the king of the jungle. Notice another S. It's a surprise. Jesus takes the scroll and he ends John's sob and he is the sibling and he breaks the seals. But whatever you do, don't you miss those scars. The elder, he calls Jesus a lion. But when John turns his head, we're told in verse 6, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Horns are symbols of strength. Seven eyes speak of his omnipresence. He's empowered with the sevenfold anointing of the one Holy Spirit. He is the king. But surprise! The lion John sees looks like a lamb. What a paradox. The word translated lamb in verse 6 is little lamb. Mary had a little lamb. But he's now the conquering king in heaven. He is the roaring lamb. Lambs or sheep are the most talked about animals in all the Bible. But usually in connection with sacrifice. I mean, a lamb was God's sacrifice of choice in the Old Testament. A river of blood flowed from the temple. The only way that Israel could come before God was with a sacrifice. And all those sacrifices were leading up to the ultimate perfect sacrifice. For when the Baptist came out of the wilderness, he identified Jesus the Messiah. He pointed to Jesus and he said to the nation, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, at this critical moment in the universe's history, the Son of God steps forward to take the title deed to God's creation and to open the seals of judgment. He is the lion of heaven. Heaven and its angels have always known him as this lion. But here Jesus appears as a sacrificed lamb. If I ask you, what are the only man-made things in heaven? How would you answer? Well, the only man-made things in heaven are the scars of our Lord Jesus. We know that after His resurrection, Jesus showed Thomas the nail scars in His hands. But the lance also left a scar in His side, did it not? The brutal scourging left crisscross scars across His back. Puncture holes from the crown of thorns, I'm sure, were seen in His forehead. Even his face was disfigured when they plucked out his beard. If the wounds in his hands were visible, why not his other scars? When Mary first saw the risen Lord, she didn't recognize him. Remember, she mistook him for the gardener. It's probable that his face bore marks of severe scarring. Isaiah 52 verse 14 says as much. It's a prophecy of Jesus we're told his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Hebrew scholars Colin Delitz, they translate that verse, so disfigured his appearance was not human 
and his form not like that of the children of men. Jesus was beaten beyond human recognition. I believe when our Lord Jesus was taken off the cross, his face looked like it belonged to a heavyweight boxer who had just gone 15 rounds in a slugfest. His body looked as if it had been torn and tethered in a devastating airplane crash. Trust me, if a funeral had been held for our Lord Jesus, it would have been closed casket. Thus, when John sees Jesus the lion in heaven, he looks and he gasps, for there stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Here is a lion that looks like a butchered lamb. I heard of a little girl once whose mom's face was severely, dis- severely disfigured. Her cruel classmates called the mother a monster. This girl started to hate and resent her mom for the humiliation she caused her. Until one day, her mom set the daughter down and explained how she got those scars. When the girl was a, a baby, the house had caught on fire. And the mom raced through the burning inferno to rescue her little daughter. The scars on the mother's face were the burns that she endured to save her daughter. Well, needless to say, from that moment on, the little girl was never again embarrassed by her mother's scars. In fact, those scars became a point of her greatest pride. I think at first we're going to be shocked. We, We might even recoil in terror when we see his scars. I'm not sure anything can prepare us for our first look into the face of Jesus. But it won't take long for us to recall that His scars represent the price He paid so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be made part of God's family. Suddenly, His scars will become our greatest source of pride and catalyst for praise. I believe when a million years expire in heaven... I'll keep going back to those scars. And it's there I'll learn the depths of my King's marvelous love for me. Well, this is where Jesus shatters the perception of how we view Him on earth. He was beaten because He made Himself vulnerable. He let cruel men take Him and torture Him and crucify Him. The lion willingly became a lamb. As a lamb before its shears is silent, He opened not His mouth. Yet today, you can hear the lamb roar. Jesus is no longer vulnerable. He now has overcome. He's won the victory. He's taken the scroll and he's loosed the seals. He is the lamb, but he is a roaring lamb. Jesus is a lamb who will forevermore act like a lion. The scars will always be there as eternal reminders of the price Jesus paid. But the lion suffers no more. His face speaks of love, but there's fire in His eyes. The hands that cradled babies and opened blind eyes and passed out fish and bread now breaks open seven seals that wreak havoc on the planet. Billions of hard, rebellious sinners die as a result. And in this one moment, John's faith matures. For he realizes that redemption is only half the Savior's work. That after Jesus takes the scroll, He breaks those seals. Judgment will flow from the same spigot where mercy now streams. 
In heaven today, God's throne is called the mercy seat. Soon, it'll be a judgment seat. And here is where our faith must grow up. Here is where our faith must get strong. We need to see Jesus, not just as He once was while on earth, but as He now is and will forever be. Jesus. Our Jesus. He's the King of the jungle. The Master is more than a sacrifice. His ambitions are far greater than just our forgiveness. He has designs on the whole universe. It belongs to Him now. and He will reign and rule for all eternity. The lion is a lamb. And the lamb is a lion. Before this vision, I imagine John was a lot like us. He quibbled about life's injustices. I mean, every illness, every little ache and pain caused him to wonder about God's love for him. How could a good God allow bad stuff? He asked those questions. His faith was very, very fragile. But after this vision, I'll bet you John stopped his quibbling and his wandering and his doubting. I'll bet from this point on, John knows that soon, very soon, righteousness will prevail. There is a king who's coming. Our fractured world will be reset. Evil will be punished. Faith will be rewarded. From now on, John hangs not only his hopes for his own soul, but his hopes for the whole world on the roaring lamb. And here John joins the heavenly host in what happens next. Verse 8. Now when he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Notice, these are prayers. These are your prayers. These are the prayers that have been prayed for centuries. Here's another S. Call it the supplications or the request of the saints. Realize your prayers really do matter. At times, it's hard to see this from our vantage point on earth. A few weeks ago, I I prayed at the bedside of an old friend. He was dying, and I prayed for his healing. The next day, though, he died. And I struggled with that. I mean, we're supposed to pray, and God is supposed to answer. But at times, we don't see it. At least not in the way we want. But here we get a glimpse of heaven. We see God's throne. And guess what's there? Right next to His throne is a bowl full of your prayers. Don't you tell me your prayers don't matter. Don't you say that the prayers you hoist up to God get lost in the shuffle, or they don't matter, or they get ignored. To the contrary, God has put angels and living creatures Majestic beings. He's put the 24 elders in charge of your prayers. And they are kept in close proximity to His throne. We'll see later that God addresses this bowl of prayers. Eventually, every cry for justice and deliverance and blessing and peace and even retribution gets answered by God in His way and in His time, not our own. And notice our final S, a song. It's true, in the end, every prayer will become a praise. It may take 10 days 
or 10 years or 10 million years, but every prayer will become a praise one day. Verse 9 tells us, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to the God to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Who is this in heaven singing? Who but the church can sing such a song? Who fits this description? Redeemed out of every tribe, tongue, people, nation. This is certainly not Israel. Only the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ can sing this song of redemption. And you know what this means? This means that while the seals are being broken, when the gloves come off and God begins to pummel the earth with judgment, guess where the church is? The church is in heaven before the throne singing God's praise. And I love this idea of singing a new song. When heaven witnesses the roaring lamb taking the scroll and opening the seals, how do they respond? They praise, they praise him. And this is how we must react when we see the glory and the greatness and the grace of our Lord Jesus. We need to sing. We need to respond with praise and with singing and with a new song. Not some old, stale song that you sing mindlessly and mechanically. We need to make it fresh. We need to sing it from our hearts. You know, the Bible begins and ends with a song. When Adam was created, his first recorded words that came out of his mouth were a song. He welcomes Eve by singing her a love song. The words there in Genesis are both lyrical and melodic. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He was singing a song. You know, some scholars suggest that before sin entered the world, Adam and Eve always sung to each other. Maybe, maybe we should start doing that in our marriages. Why don't you go home this afternoon and all afternoon just sing to your wife, sing to your husband. That would change things. After the fall of man, the world substituted boring prose for exciting praise and song. Today we talk on earth rather than sing. And yet today, singing is still the language of heaven. Verses 11 and 12 provides us lyrics to heaven's song. John writes, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands. In other words, there's too many of them to count. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Notice this. Heaven is amazed most not by the lion's claws or his paws or his teeth or even his roar, but it's those scars that gets heaven's attention. I'm telling you, from time etern- for time eternal, whenever we see his scars... We're going to bow and we're going to worship. The lion is hailed as the lamb who was slain. You know the story of Robin Hood? You know that story? Well, the story's legend, but the story's backdrop is historical. 
While the English king Richard was away fighting the Crusades, his greedy brother John usurped his authority and reigned in Richard's place. John abused the Brits and he misused the throne. And then one day, Richard returned. The Lionheart returned. He marched straight to his throne. The revolt toppled like dominoes. Richard the Lionheart, as he was called, was hailed and praised by the British people. Bells of joy rang out from church belfries all over England for weeks after his return. Everywhere Richard went, people lined the streets and they shouted, The lion is back! Long live the lion! And this is what happens at the end of Revelation chapter 5. The lamb that came to earth the first time to pay the redemption price is the lion who is returning to take back possession from Satan. Take back what belongs to him. Today, heaven praises the lion that's like a lamb and the lamb that's a lion. And worship never dies down in heaven. About the time one voice fades, another eruption of praise occurs. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, now all creation joins with heaven in the worship and adoration of the Lamb. I heard them saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And then those four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped Him who lives forever and ever. Now here's what I think. I think it's time for you and I to stop our quibbling. Oh yeah, I know the world's giving you a tough deal. I know you've gotten a, a bad shake. I know we live in a fallen world. I know life isn't always fair. I know life can throw some nasty curveballs. Injustices occur, accidents happen, disasters strike. Life doesn't always turn out the way you'd hoped. I know that. But I also know that a grown-up faith realizes that this life is only temporary. That a lamb roars in heaven. That he is worthy to rule. And he is on his way back. And he has a deed in hand. And he is about to settle every single score. Stop your wondering about whether he loves you. Stop your worrying about how things are going to turn out. And start your worship today, for He is worthy to be praised. John's few moments in heaven taught him to remember those scars, certainly. But don't stop there. Don't just see Jesus as He once was, but as He will be, and as He is now. John learned to hang all his hopes for a better life and for a better world on Jesus, the Roaring Lamb.